Hey, I want to introduce our YouTube channel and our YouTube video. This is Marcus Tuttle. I'm a real estate guy for a lot of years, and so is David Sugg. We are talking about real estate on the wide world of real estate. And uh, I sound like Wolfman Jack or an alligator because of a little bit under the weather, but I hope you enjoy. Is this your, uh, your jam board? How do you establish value? Yeah. That's awesome. I just uh, I referenced it last time whenever I just attended that. CE from that appraiser. It was actually revealing. A little bit revealing because on CMAs they want you to they want you to plus or minus stuff. For, right. And you're like, well, let's just uh, whittle it down to what I want to see. When yeah. in actuality, the lady had a basis. They got to do some training appraisers. I mean, it is a thankless profession until you start getting your getting your license and getting your master's license so there's degrees of their licensing yeah so they they need to work under somebody for a while and then they become an independent appraiser so there's at least two different designations i think maybe even more yeah i think they got the kind of the, the hammer brought down on them after the, the 0708 crash. I think they got a little more stringent even in the appraiser world, not just in the lending, but how they derive value. It's pretty highly regulated. Yep. So a bank can't directly choose their person because the holy trinity of conspiracy seemed to be a realtor, a mortgage person, and an appraiser. Yeah. Well, what do you want to talk about? What have you been up to? Hammering, um, hammering stuff. Yeah, I'm refinishing floors right now. You got a drum sander? I went and rented one. Rented it Sunday. Drum and an edge sander. Yeah. You got skills? I mean, the sanding is 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 kind of the easy. It's not the easy part, but it's the simple part. You know, uh, just keep fucking sanding. I mean, it's sure it's easy to dig a hole, isn't it? I have. I have. But, I mean, at now I'm pretty good at keeping it moving, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll do, I'll do like, I'll leave like four foot from one edge. So I'm only, I'm, you know, I start it and do the first, you know, if it's a 14-foot room, I do 10-foot going there. Then I cut back the other way and do that. Um and then the main thing is just hitting it with all, you know, three or four cycles, you know, go from mm -hmm. the 36 to the 60 to the 80, the 120, and just let it do its thing. But after I get off that like 60 grit, it's pretty simple. It's pretty good. Uh, some real rough floors. I've seen some professional operations just go perpendicular to it. I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, yeah, man, it's rough. So they hit it perpendicular and then work it out. You know, if you're really rough, you can go diagonal. I've had some success doing that. You did that? Yeah. Uh-uh. No. Well, you, you're really cutting it if you're going diagonal or perpendicular. I mean, you're really cutting into it. Yeah. I had never really thought about working it out. Um, I think somebody did that on one of the floors in our house. <laughs> there's there's lines running. I'm like, and I've, I've redone them twice, but I could never get those out of it. I just left it. So. Yep. Cut it sideways. Yeah, you get enough poly on it, throw a rug down. I mean, it's all good. So, are you so. gonna <laughs> you gonna paint the walls after you get all that dust on there? We already got all the painting done, Marcus. It's all done. 
Uh-huh. So now we got to go clean it all up. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, put that in your manual for next time. Yeah, well, it's it's tricky because I don't like I've, I've done it both ways, and neither neither ways am I really happy. So it's like even when I do the floors first, it's like then trying to take care of the floors through the whole job. I hate that, you know, because I I'll spend three hundred bucks getting that RAM board, that high quality, mm-hmm. like yep. I put that down everywhere and you know, it's just, so I've, I've probably done four of these projects and two of them I've done like I've done now. And one, we did the floors first and it just, just, it just made me nervous the whole time. So people kick up on the edge, rip that tape up. Yeah. I mean, over? You know, we're, especially if we're doing tile and paint and electricity, I mean, just, uh, so there really ain't no easy way to, to break the egg and put it back together. Yeah. It's just, always sucks so you got to help her on your floors uh rachel came and helped a little bit she was picking stuff up and saying things like that spot needs to be sanded more that spot needs to be sanded more. quality control qc yeah, yeah. uh sonda went had to renew our line of credit on a house um it's up every year and i was concerned that they were going to renege on me because uh just a crap tax returns last year, but it went through. So we'll have that for opportunities coming up in the next. Do you have to do appraisals, another round of appraisals? They did an AVM. They did a drive-by. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and prices have gone up significantly. So I really wasn't worried about that, but they were really pushing on me about, about that income thing. You know, Don't um, worry about it. Yeah. Did you see the value? I'll pay you back. Did you see the AVM? <laughs> well, you know, you hear this over and over again, like people like the Burr. I mean, it's a Burr Facebook page. Like, yeah, just buy it, rehab it, renovate it, you know, and refinance. It's like, and I, I that just hadn't been my story. It just hadn't worked out that way. Um, let me see your tax returns. So. <laughs> Wait, my tax returns? Yeah. What about <laughs> asset asset-based lending so so you sweat it pretty good yeah but it's, or it's, it was it's just in- internal you're like uh i've been shot down by so many banks this past like three months i was kind of sweating it honestly yeah. yeah um but you know i've been looking at tom barry's stuff and looking at bo Eckstein stuff um they definitely seem like good products for people like you and i um but and what know, is that all, product? They're just they're doing all kind of stuff. They're doing, you know, 30 year fixed rate for rental properties. They're doing fix and flips. They're doing wrappable products. So you can, you know, buy something, put a note on it, then wrap it to an end buyer. Um, but real creative lending. But it's still from what I've seen of like Tom's stuff, it's still, you know, sixty percent LTVs for a cash out. Was like sixty percent LTV. What am I gonna I mean <laughs> Gee, thanks. Yeah. I mean, the guy who's looking for that has got free and clear properties. And if they got free and clear properties, they probably don't want, you know, to just take out 60%. They don't want to sell it and get all their equity or just keep it, you know, keep it free and clear. So I think that's a big job, though, is finding the loan products that work for us and going after them. You know, they're just not, not readily available to me. Well, you ever thought about going to those Quest mixers? I'll think of a like, bunch of them. Go to a bunch of them. They have those virtual ones. I don't know how you make rapport over the internet. 
Yeah, I don't know. Trust me with your money. Yeah. Promissory <laughs> note. <laughs> your security. Uh, you're, you're secure. <laughs> You'd yeah. be the manager of a trust. Yeah. Well, what are you going to talk about? Oh, <clears throat> uh, I don't know. Mike Gunn shared an interesting article with me today about. Uh, let me grab it right quick. Let me grab it. There's been an awful lot in the news lately and in social media about, you know, uh, the investment firms in Wall Street buying investment properties and kind of, yeah, there's been pros and cons. And there's been some people who said, hey, they're not buying that many houses. You know, in the grand scheme of things, they're buying, you know, maybe one or two percent. That's not a whole, whole lot. But the, the interesting thing is, it's, it's kind of not how many they're buying, but what they're buying. Um, the article goes on to say, you know, it's not just that they're buying houses all over the place, but they're buying the, the houses that would make the most sense for first time home buyers, you know, growing populations, low, low cost. Uh, and in those, in those markets, they really are buying them up. Um, it says invitation homes, which operates in 16 cities with the biggest concentration in Atlanta, where it owns 12,506 houses. That's not much compared to the 80,000 homes sold in Atlanta each year. Invitation homes has bought 90% of the homes for sale in some of the zip codes in Atlanta in early 2010. So, you know, it's not that they're buying a whole lot in the whole global market of Atlanta, but in certain areas, they're buying them up. Like, you know, in certain subdivisions and certain spots, they're getting, they're getting them all, all they can. And also it just talks about, you know, the kind of money that they're using. Um, you know, it says it's it's getting billion dollar loans at interest rates around one and a half percent. In practice, that means that invitation homes can afford to tack on an extra five to twenty thousand dollars to the purchase price of every home and still get the house at the actual cost as a homeowner. You know, we start going up against these people. There's really it's no contest. Um, also, they're more inclined to buy needing repairs or needing something, whereas a homeowner right. wants it, you know, turnkey, ready to go. Um, so it's it's interesting. I think we're going to see a whole lot more of that. Um, there was that article a couple months ago where uh, somebody did the first, you know, build to rent subdivision. You know, I think it was 110 homes out in Conroe, right. Texas. Right. It went on the auction. I think Fundrise bought it. You know, for just almost a hundred million. Yeah. I mean, just a crazy amount of money. Um, Selling bulk, right? Yeah. I mean, it was a home builder, you know, a subdivision developer went out and built it to rent. Um, Yeah. That's unprecedented. We've never seen anything like that. Um, And so where does that leave us? I mean, it's like, you know, I know a lot of people are like, Hey man, there's still deals out there. You just go find them, you know, keep working. But a lot of my investor friends are complaining about, you know, cap rate, compression not being able to get the returns just not wanting to wade into the the bidding wars um so i I do think there's still money to be made but for a lot of us who kind of came up on easy street you know the 2010 11 and 12 run it's really hard for me to get out of bed and want to go fight for these deals (laughs) you know (laughs) like i don't want to go do that um we were buying houses for fifteen, twenty thousand dollars that now are selling for sixty and eighty thousand dollars. You know, we were buying stuff for forty grand, it's now selling for one forty. Like I don't I don't get excited to go throw in a 
you know, 80% of value offer on that. Did you just um, say you bought it for 40 and now you can sell for 140? Yeah. Yeah. In the Fondren area for oh, sure. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, man. Dealing with the seller, like look me in the eye, never mind them. Look me in the <laughs> eye. <laughs> yeah. You want to close this transaction as painlessly as possible. Let's do this. So, um, I've yeah, heard so, like, un, I don't, I can't cite my source, but talking about becoming a rental nation, mm-hmm. you know, should the QAnon theorists would have a field day with that. They don't want you to have anything. Well, I, we've definitely seen the wealth gap get very wide yeah. in the past decade. Um, you know, I've got my, my set of friends that I have here in Jackson now. It's the longest set of friends I've ever had before. You know, almost 11 years I've been here in Jackson. And I've got friends that I've known that have been renting the whole time. And now to see where they are 11 years later, still in the job, still renting, maybe maybe they've bought a few cars or done a few things. Now they're trying to enter the housing market. Whereas I've been buying constantly as much as I can for the past six years I mean, it's just, it's different worlds, you know, where mm-hmm. I am and where they are. And we were on the exact same footing 10 years ago. Um, and those aren't bad people. They just haven't been buying assets for the past decade. Just haven't been doing it. So we're going to see that that is going to be more and more of a push. Um, now they're trying to buy houses and it's like the most expensive time to, to buy them, or it feels like the most expensive time. I don't know that it is. I think it might get more expensive. Yeah. Well, let's talk about my jam board. Yeah. So what do you do? I many times I just like get comps in the area and say, all right, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars square foot. Oh yeah. And just honestly times times it by the square footage. You know, the first thing they do in an appraisal is they, they what's it for? What are we doing this for? Yeah. You know, the appraiser is going to come in and say, is it a purchase? Is it a refi? What's going on? And it's almost kind of a loaded question. You know, it's like, it doesn't really matter what it's for, Mr. Appraiser. Give me the right. fucking value of it. You know, sure. but that's what they want to know. What's it for? And all of a sudden, that's kind of what dictates where we're going with this. So if we're looking for a fix and flip, you know, okay, well, we're going to look at everything that needs to get done to it. Whereas if we're looking at just a new purchase, Maybe we'll depreciate. Maybe we're only going to notice red flags, but we're not going to pick everything out. I, I think that's where I have a hard time. It's like, you know, my sister says, what's the value of the house? Well, shit, you know, compared to what do I want to pay for? What's the value to an investor? Right. Well, I just made some notes off of what, was presented at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And I think on the last recording we did, we found out that Zillow's estimates, even though even though they were recently sold, it looked like Zillow still had something to say about the value, what they recorded as their estimate, even though there's a recent sale. Right? You remember that? Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, the, this lady, she's a... She's a well-regarded appraiser here, and she said um, she's just the basics of finding value, access, 
value is is to access comparable sales and do enough searching to discern how much someone's willing to pay for a lot. So they start with two years out. You're looking at my, are you looking at my um, thing? You're looking at my jam board? Yeah, I see. Yes. Okay. So um, they always minus out the lot. So they'll do enough searching in an area to figure out how much a lot sold for within the last two years and just, minus that out of all the comparables. So you got three comparables and then you're going to minus out the lot. And now you can start talking about the amenities of a house. Mm-hmm. So the other thing is a little telling is what they call uh, paired sales, just um, paired sales analysis. It's a technique to determine a feature's value uh, within a property. Like, I don't know garage or brick or extra lot or pool, something like that. So when an appraiser finds three, uh, for example, three recent small office building sales for the primary differences, the presence of brick facade or a sizable parking lot, then the appraiser can make two sets of comparisons, one with the brick facade to the one without, one with the parking lot to the one without. And these pairings are called paired sales. So um, back to that part where I've never (laughs) known what to do is, is like, well, how much you got to minus away for this one? And then just, I bet a bunch of realtors or laymen don't have a clue and I'm guilty as charged. But um, so on a pair of sales, so your subject doesn't have a pool and is on a corner lot, right? So your first comparable has a pool and the comparable doesn't. So when the comparable has an amenity and the subject doesn't, you take away from the comparable, which is a little bit counterintuitive or not intuitive at all. But then on comparable two, uh, the comparable has a corner light and the uh, comparable two um, doesn't have that amenity. You add whatever that, that paired sales, um, analysis you you've you kind of figured out within within that grouping which is probably geographic um you add you add that number back to the comparable so you can either take an average or take a median or something like that right yeah yeah does that make sense yeah with uh, with all this add and subtract and what you're basically saying is highly manipulable uh they can really get get fancy with it. Like, well, we took the pool away and we added a bathroom. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then they had this cool term like this. I didn't, I didn't write it on the jam board, but they reserved the right to change their mind. And they, they called the CMA a forward looking, mm-hmm. um, whatever a value assumption or, um, whatever you want to call it, a forward looking, Estimation of value while she felt like an appraisal was a rear looking. So I guess I have a hard time telling you what to list your house for. Mm. Like that last sale that I did, it was, um, ended up going for one thirty seven five right after the competition, which was a very good deal in my area just cause nothing sells for that. But the appraiser had put, 130 on it 
and it ended up for the bank appraising for a hundred and fifty one or a hundred and fifty four. Wow. So quite a range, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're fifteen percent off on a hundred forty thousand dollar house, that's okay. But you know, if you're fifteen percent off on a two million dollar property, that hurts. If you're fifteen percent off on a ten million dollar property, I think they get a little more loosey goosey, kind of when the stakes are maybe not as high. Um, but you know, my sister had an appraisal done. She wanted to refi six months ago, and the appraisal came in. Uh, just a little bit low for her to hit her goal. She wanted to avoid PMI. That was her whole thing. She's like, if I could avoid this PMI, I save 220 bucks a month. Let me try to go after this. It's and, worth you getting an appraisal. Exactly. Yeah. Cause she was going to be on PMI for another six years. So she refied to a 15, a 15 year loan, like 2% and was going to get rid of PMI, but she needed like a $255,000 appraisal. It came in at like 248. Mm -hmm. I said, well, did the appraiser put his phone number on there? She said, yes. I said, call him and raise hell. She said, raise hell. You can't do that. I said, yeah, you can call him and raise hell. Yeah, I said, you know, uh, you've made some updates to the house. You put granite in there. You've done some painting. You've done some landscaping. Tell him to relook at it. And she, she got it within 50 bucks of where she needed it. You know, she needed it at 256 and it came in at 256.5, the 500 bucks. Um, so, you know, did he mess Thank up the first time? Me. Yeah, did he mess up the first time? Did he mess up the second time? You know, who knows? Um, she got the payment she needs. It lowered her payment. Her money, yeah, she went from a thirty to a fifteen, so it raised her. It raised her payment about a hundred bucks a month with with cutting off the PMI. So mm -hmm. it was really, really, really good for her. Um, what she wanted, I told her to just keep with the thirty, but she wouldn't. She's like, she wanted you can to always pay more if you want to. <laughs> you know, it's funny, man. Day comes where you want to pay more. Yeah. I explained that to her and she's just like, I'm getting a 2% loan. You know, I don't care. It's 2%. Okay. Go for it. At the end of the day, if you're happy, you're happy. So. Mm -hmm. But she did. She contested that appraisal and she won on that one. She got what she needed. So I've never wanted to pay more though. Yeah. I don't I don't know. You know, my sister and my brother are both alike in the sense that they have got their financial goals tied to when their kids graduate high school. And so, like, for some reason, if, if for some reason they all graduate high school, don't go to jail, get in college, and their house have paid off at the same time, to them, I think that's nirvana. So they've all done that. Like, they, right. they all want to have the house paid off on graduation day. Uh -huh. And that seems like just the coup, the coup de gras to them. Everybody so graduates at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the house is paid for. Like, great. So. But I Let mean. Let me show you what else I was talking about. So it was actually good information. Um, what this, this lady was laying down. I'll, I'll just, I think I can finish up pretty fast. A tab. Jamboard. Share. Can you see it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thing, whenever you, you know, do you know the difference between an average and a median? I'll tell you. So an average just takes it up. You got 
seven numbers, you add them together and divide it by seven, right? Average, seven numbers, add them up all together, divide yeah. by seven, that gets the average, yes. That's right. So on a normal distribution, so the data you're comparing is mostly uniform. You can safely use the average aggregator. However, if your number set has some outliers and you need to consider using a median to filter out the values that are skewing the results. So on this normal distribution, you got these reasonably close numbers and you add them all up and divide by seven, there's your average six. But on this, there's seven numbers and they're kind of based in a normal distribution. You got that median, which is the middle. You can call it five is the median number. But if you got something that's skewed, you take those you take those eight numbers and it's got the single digits, and then you throw one thirty in there, and you divide that by eight, it pushes that average up. But meanwhile, if you find that median range, so there's eight numbers, and you take the two in the middle, three and the five, and divide those by two, it equals four. So it threw out the outlier with considering the median right yeah so i guess they talked about that in that course a little bit but uh so the things that were helpful were how they plus and minus or weighted the comparables and what the process they went through mm -hmm. um being a look back instead of looking forward about a probability of sale and they said that cost at an equal value. And another thing would be to maybe they're just because of being in Louisiana, they brought up an analogy of which, which costs more four pounds of dog food or 40 pounds of dog food. Talk, I guess that was the, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a reference from when it, what they were talking about, but I wrote it down the, recorded here i thought i'd be able to figure out what it meant by then but i i don't know what she was talking about probably the bigger a house is on in a grouping that, that's what it was the bigger a house is in the grouping the less you would be able to get for you you would be in an area that wouldn't support extrapolating out that higher price for the larger home in a in a given geographic area did they, did so, they talk? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You know, being the biggest house in the area, you're going to diminish your, you're going to diminish your value if if you compare that bigger house to a bunch of bigger houses. That was the, I guess, the mean in a geographic area. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the the meat of it. Did they talk anything about like in this market specifically, where almost appraisals can't keep up with the sales. I mean, yeah. we're seeing it over and over again where the house is listed at 200 grand, six offers come in at 240. The thing's appraising for 200, but they're selling, you know, because the person, you know, what somebody's willing to pay for it is not the same thing as what the appraiser's going to say it's worth. You know, what are, what are they doing to kind of mitigate that uh, situation? It brings in an important point, and they called it, faced with those situations, they went into an ROV. A reconsideration of value. <laughs> yeah. uh, let me let me look at my figures. Maybe I maybe I took that tool off. Uh -uh. Yeah. 
Yeah. It went up. It went up. Yeah. So that's usually when somebody bitches and or provides a lot more comparables. And she said, I'm human. You know, I do what I can, but I'm human. Yeah. And another thing is you think you pay for an appraisal. You think your sister thought she was paying for the appraisal. They do like a uh, presto change fact and say, no, you reimburse the bank. The bank is my customer. I can't let you see this appraisal. You're not my customer, which I know that's pissed a bunch of people off over the years. Yeah. I've, I've heard it, you know. Seems like with my equity line, I think we get to see ours somehow. But there's no real middleman. I'm, I'm trying to think of why I get to see mine. I, Maybe I've my all, bankers I've just all mine. I haven't had that card played on me where they would let me see it. Mm-hmm. They're like, "Oh, the, the house is appraising good. You just <laughs> you're too risky. Yeah. <laughs> I don't give you any money." I'm like, "Well, why did we wait till like a month into this process? Like, couldn't you have just Facebooked me or something and told me that to begin with? Like, we went through all this rigmarole." To do what? To get told no. Like, okay, well, no, you, yeah. you, don't, you don't make any money. It's like, well, that's like pay my for job. An appraisal? You paid for an appraisal before they told you no? It's happened twice. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. And one with a local mortgage broker that was like, I'm going to get you in, man. I got you. We got some great products. It's all going to work out. Um, and then like right at the finishing line, he was like, have you got your 2018 tax return? I was like, yeah, no problem. And I send that right over to you. And he called me back like 10 minutes later. He's like, can you amend this thing? <laughs> I was like, no, I can't amend it. It is what it is. Like, I didn't pay any taxes in 2018. It's great, right? He's like, no, it's bad. <laughs> like, I, I spent that money, taxes. man. I bought yeah. some things on spec. We rehabbed houses, man, and went to Cuba with Wally. Like, it was great. It was a great year. <laughs> I'm ready for it to be reimbursed. <laughs> yeah. My Facebook group said you were going to do this, so you need to do this. <laughs> are you still friends with him or that in the end of relationship? Uh, yeah, I ended the relationship. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I it, you should give him a little more grace, but I mean, I just really like, let's find the biggest roadblock that there's going to be and go ahead and tackle that. You know, but like waiting for the biggest thing at the end, that's just a waste of my time. Um, and for some reason, they don't want to do that. They always want to pull credit. It's like, man, I got a 780 credit score. I pay all my bills and have for 10 years. Don't worry mm-hmm. about, you know, they want to pull credit. They want to talk about the property. They want to get everything else mis and plies. And then the very, very end, they're like, all right, let's let's do this. And like, oh, you don't make any money. It's like, we could have told you that in the beginning. You know, I'm a real estate investor and I want to zero out as much as possible and depreciate and expense everything out. So, but, you know, the good news is, is all these loans that we have are, are short-term loans, you know, eight to 10 years. And so my balance sheet is growing quickly, you know, yeah. each month. That's a good feeling. You know, I can literally look at it and be like, hey, we, we're making $3,000 a month, the principal, or 4000 bucks a month. So, I mean, there's a, there's a silver lining to it. And it, and also, you know, through the pandemic, you know, I, when I called everybody, it was probably 
the middle of May, I called like 12 private lenders and was like, I don't know what's fixing to happen. I might not be able to pay you. And they're like, I called them all. I called them all, man. I mean, if they had a $10,000 loan with me or a $100,000 loan with me, I did too. I was just, just checking in. I'm like, just, I didn't, you know, you know uh, just calling a call. Yeah. What do y'all want to do? And, and they said, you know, they were all flexible and we didn't have to miss a payment. We kept paying, but, but I can't do that with a bank. Um, actually, you could do it this go around, but that doesn't normally happen. You know, right. You say, hey, defer my payments for six months. So, well, what's your plan? You know, I've, 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 the foreclosures um, have been slow to, to get rolling again. It's definitely not worth the time. There's just not enough inventory out there to mm-hmm. really spend a whole lot of time chasing them. You know, we're, may, we're maybe seeing like two or three prospects a week. That's not even worth tracking real hard. Uh, when it gets to like 15 or 20 a week in our area, that would be closer to, to, to hitting gold every now and then. Uh, we're still following them to see what's going on, but I don't know if there's going to be a tsunami or what. Like, I just don't know. Are these people, are they catching up on their payments or are other investors getting to them first and are hedge funds buying? Because I mean, I'm sure the hedge funds could be tracking them just as easily as I am. You know, are they buying them? Mm-hmm. Um, well, but, yeah. I mean, the moratorium hasn't, the music hadn't stopped on the, on the musical chairs. It, ha- it hasn't stopped yet, right? It's people, people are still in forbearance officially right i guess till the end of july maybe yeah and they're gonna either gonna have to sell i mean i'm just spouting what kenny mack said yeah they're gonna have to sell and hopefully their equity is grown enough to be able to afford to sell or they're gonna have to requalify or they're gonna go to foreclosure yeah which i mean that's my linear thinking is how how do you stick a value on something in in des moines or phoenix how do you do that do you spend two hundred dollars to a broker? Do yeah, get you, a B, a BPO. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've seen more and more banks doing the. Uh, yeah, banks used to be scared of holding inventory; they wouldn't do it. But I've seen more and more banks fixing up houses, throwing a roof on it, throwing an air conditioner on it, getting it fit and safe, and then throwing mm-hmm. it on the market. Um, so I don't know if we might see some more of that. With some of these big, big banks, if they just say, "Hey, Zillow's we're in the real estate business," yeah, we're in the real estate business. Let's do it. Because honestly, they're leaving a lot of money on the table not doing it. Oh um, yeah, but it's just an extra business. Yeah, they don't want that liability. They, historically, they haven't. That's what we've always heard is like they get penalized for having bad loans on the thing. Yeah. But I think it's just new monetary policy. I think that's what's going to be another day, another change in the monetary policy. Yeah. You listen to Rich Dad, Poor Dad? You listen to Kiyosaki? I don't. He's a little uh, black helicopter-ish. But he says exactly what we know, but he verbalizes it pretty well. He said, I create wealth through debt. I create wealth through debt and I store value. He said, why would you try to store value in anything that the government can print? So he's pretty anti paper dollars. I bet he takes paper dollars for his courses and stuff, but he says for his rent (laughs) and for his food. Yeah. But other than that papers out. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
So I'm really curious. I mean, you do the research on the guy. He's got, I mean, he didn't come out of the gate with rich dad, poor dad. I'll put it that way. He's got some bankruptcies and failed attempts. Yeah. On some stuff, but I mean, he was, he was at the right place in time for his, for his message. So you kind of gauge, you know, I respect McElroy and that was his guy. So Kiyosaki, I think he's right on, but for some reason I don't want to go total QAnon <laughs> to QAnon shaman on things. Yeah. I was like, well, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, it's the agreed upon store of values or dollar right now. Are you, are you like, uh, how do you feel about it? Well, I mean, the dollar is 20% of the global interactions or interchanges is 26% of them are all fueled by the U S dollar and the U S economy. Um, Ken McElroy had some, some guest on a couple months ago that was, it was poo pooing on people who want to talk bad about the dollar said, you know, the dollar is not backed by anything. It's backed by aircraft carriers. And, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> Ken it's said that? By the U S uh, his guest did, uh, yeah. you know, it's just like, you don't think the dollar's backed by anything. I mean, go look at the, Turn on the TV, you know, look at the news. That's what it's backed by. Um, you know, we got strong consumerism. We've got strong military. We, we got oil and gas. I mean, and the world runs off the dollar. Um, you know, there's there's other currencies and other things out there, but nothing's coming close to what the dollar's doing right now. Yeah, I know China's been growing a whole, whole bunch over the past decade, but I mean, they're completely untrustworthy. You talk about manipulation and, and just, you know, controlling everything, the government. Mm-hmm. You think you think the dollars is controlled and manipulated? I mean, that's all part of their five thousand year plan. I mean, the Chinese have got it dialed in. So I think it's just the devil you're going to dance with. I mean, it's, it is what it is. But do I have any problems with the dollar? I worry about. Um. You know, I don't have a problem of having too much money that I got to store it somewhere. I'm trying. I'm still trying to make it. You know, <laughs> there are guys. There are yeah. guys who are out there who are like, I've got all this money. And I don't know what to do with it. A friend of ours, Rich, Rich on a, on Facebook put out there. He's like, you know, how can I turn this half million into, into two? Yeah. Did you see my like, comment? Yeah, distillery? I yeah, don't yeah, know. Yeah. What do you want to – I told him I about can't some- believe he took me seriously. He's like, <laughs> yeah. that's a great idea. What should I call it? I said, drunk investor. <laughs> yeah. Like – but you're seeing this over and over again where these investors or people with cash are like, they're not finding any kind of returns and they don't know what to do. And they really are scared. If I just put this under the bed for the next two or three years, it's going to be worthless. And yeah. I totally agree with them. They're probably right. right. If they don't find somewhere to put it, it is, it might not be worthless, like go to zero, but it will be worth less than it is. It's today. not adjusted for inflation. It is not a vehicle that's adjusted for inflation. Yeah. It's going to go down with, with everything else. Um, but at the same time, is there anything wrong with having half a million under your bed? Absolutely not. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with having some cash and being ready for, for whatever. Um, you know, I, I do think if, if the shit really does hit the fan and you know, there's the, the Humvees are on the streets and it looks like Katrina again, they're still going to be trading in dollars, man. They're not going to be trading in gold. You know, They're going to be trading in whatever they can get their hands on. But dollars is still going to be what it is. That's just my it's going to be the main form of currency. So yeah, it can get kind of granular. What do we got to barter with? I mean, we got this money. Let's let's use that. Yeah. No. Cool, man. Well, 
We did it again. 946. You want to bring anything else up? No. I talked to Cindy a little bit today, and she's uh, she's kind of found a rhythm out there in Carthage. She's been able to get some good deals under contract and finding finding the good. She put something up with a realtor? Sold some of the realtor? Yeah, she's been doing that. She's been doing some legit flips. Mm-hmm. Um, she had the same issue pop up where an appraisal came back light, you know, so it couldn't close. And then a month later, she gets in her contract again and appraises 30% higher. So go no figure. Yeah. Joke. I think same appraiser, you know, so it's just like, mm. Jack, you know, um, but you know, I, I think, I think there's just something to be said for looking at kind of what, what people enjoy doing and what's around them rather than chasing, you know, certain investors through South Jackson trying to keep up with them. Um, there's and I know that created a lot more enjoyment for her. I mean, yeah. Just trying to go play everybody else's game just because that's the thing to do is not necessarily it's not good for everybody yeah well i've got an old investor here that got me started uh yeah i've talked about him with you named mac that been buying and selling houses for 40 years and i talked to him about moving markets one day and he was just like man you know how much equity i've got in this market and i was like well yeah i know how much equity you got i know what you got and he's like no i know every I know every shortcut. I know every neighborhood. I know people call me every day and see if I want to come look at a house. I'm talking about that kind of equity. Mm-hmm. And Cindy's finding that equity that she didn't even realize she had in, in Carthage, you know, where people are like, they went to high school with her. They know her. They're talking to her. And now that she's operating there in town, she's getting she's getting some really good deals. That's great. Yeah. She's trying to add value to it. and Yeah. And, <clears throat> and, and taking advantage of, I went to high school with these people. You know, that's the equity right there. It's like they know me and they and they want to they want to sell to me. They want to talk to me. Rather than going down there and trying to fit in with everybody else down in South Jackson, where like you ain't gonna fit in, you know. So So I was happy for her. Very happy to hear that. Yeah. Well, you got any thoughts on how people I mean, you gotta you gotta beat on um, the arbitrage model, how people can partner with you? If they got an inventory piece of inventory, I haven't figured it out yet. I really haven't. I've been trying. Uh, but I, think I mean, I'm, if somebody called you North Mississippi or Louisiana, would you know how to partner with somebody? They're like, man, I, I like what you did to the place. I like your model. I believe in you. No, honestly, I know how to use debt. Um, I, I hate having other cooks in the kitchen. You know, if we were to figure out a way where it was really, um, you know, you're renting me the house and let me do what I want with it, or you're partnering up and let me do what I want with it, I think I could figure it out. But I've seen too many joint ventures just get sideways when it gets over budget or the product's not quite what they had both anticipated. Um, I, I don't know if I've got the personality type for that. Like, I really, I like borrowing the money and I pay you back. Those are the two terms, you know. <laughs> Weren't we talking about scaling a couple weeks ago? No, and, and so I'm, I'm going after um, apartment complexes because I, I would prefer to try to do that arbitrage conversation one time rather than have this different menu of services and this different transaction over and over and over again. I know some people that are doing it pretty well, um, but it seems like an awful lot of work and an awful lot of expectation setting and meeting. Yeah, a bunch Just, of people could change. Well, 
multiple parties could change their mind in the yeah. midstream. I mean, what do you do when you've got five arbitrages and, and five different owners decide now's the time to sell? Um, I don't yeah. know. I was, I was listening to something one day, and, and the lady was talking about how, you know, we shouldn't focus near as much on cash flow as we should really just like cash flow and debt. Um, and what I've seen you do down there in New Orleans, you know, buying properties that will actually appreciate and go up in value versus a bunch of class, you know, C and D's that cash flow like champs. You know, Rachel and I are in that spot where we've got great cash flow, but our values, even during this huge appreciation bump, have barely gone up. We haven't created a whole lot of wealth. Um, we're still in the game, but you know, the next chapter of our investing book, I want it to be some more, you know, real wealth creation rather than just cash flow. Yep. Um, I mean, some of these houses we hold on to them for another ten years. You know, will they double in value? Probably not. They're always going to be worth the cap rate. That's just, they're going to be rent houses. And so they're only going to be worth how much rent they'll spend off. Um, yeah, well, I think in areas outside of mine, having a multifamily that appreciates this kind of threading the needle, unless I'm wrong, I think it has to be, no diminution in status to have multiple units for appreciation to kind of bloom. Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with great cash flow. If it is actually good cash flow, you know, Airbnb and the group housing and the senior housing, those kind of things, you know, you're bringing a, a higher and better use to the table than, than anything else. And so, if you take advantage of that cash flow and it's funding a great lifestyle or you're able to buy more appreciating assets, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to do. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's just a, a horrible thing to do is try to get the cash flow and try to get a bunch of it, but it matters what we do with it. Um, but I mean, like these guys who are doing senior living, you know, they buy a quarter billion dollar house in Dallas, Fort Worth. They put six seniors in there. They're making 12 grand a month. The house isn't worth $1.2 million. That's how much it is on a cap rate. It's worth mm -hmm. 1.2 mil, but it's mm -hmm. never going to sell for that. But I still, I wouldn't poo-poo on for doing that. Like make the money and, and go spend it. If a hedge fund bought it at a cap rate, then it is worth it. But yeah. who knows if that's going to happen. Yeah. But we were talking about, you like, you like pretty houses. You mentioned it the other time. Mm -hmm. And your next phase might include some pretty houses that you enjoyed owning. Yeah. Not just not just the pretty houses, but uh, that that article that Mike Gunn was that shared with me about the hedge funds. You know, their criteria they're buying in, in areas that are are growing in population, houses that are built after 1970. Um, yeah, those things matter just because you know working on a 1940s or 50s house, keeping that thing up and running is no fun. It's a lot of work. You know, rewiring it, re doing the mechanics oh, yeah. behind it, checking on the foundation. Um, so I think I'd like to, to start taking some plays out of some of those books, you know, buying newer houses that just aren't completely depreciated and, you know, kind of hit that functional obsolescence. Um, but I don't know. Right now, Marcus, to be honest with you, I'm learning for the first time how to just like hyper focus on what I've got to do right now for my business and try not to look at anything else. 
you know, right now is get this next Airbnb up and done and, and take control of the McDill building. You know, we got two suites over there that got to get, and they're not big needle movers, but like that's where all of my intentions going for the next 14 days. I'm yeah, not man. looking at, I'm not looking at deals. I'm not like notes for sale or notes to create or refis or anything. Nope. Just get those two things cash flowing. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, how about you? What you got going on? Mm, honestly, I'm putting quite a lot of energy on contacting people. Um, the way I think it needs to be done, and and just you could you could take it out to anybody, your family, the people that are important to you. Is just contacting them regularly. You know, definitely trying to get the exp word out and. People aren't uh, just saying, uh, screw you, <laughs> you know, yeah. I've kind of, I think I just relaxed in it a little bit and I guess letting people approve if they want real early on and just mm -hmm. say, I say it out there in a just normal tone. I said, are you interested in talking to me a little bit? And I think just that confidence and I'm over, I kind of over what I have to say. That's kind of, I know what I, what I have to say, period. And I have to get to the point and just say, since this in the realm of reality or in the realm of possibilities, you'd want to talk to me. <laughs> so I'll make you say yes twice before I even say it. But uh, it's just, I think, uh, and following up with people, that's always value valuable, regardless of what business you're in. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned you were getting a lot of the, uh, I'm happy with my broker. Yeah. Um, is your first thought or is there a thought that I should let me go talk to the broker? And yeah, I try to make those on the independent. I do try to make those connections. I said, Hey, you know, listen, if I think is I think it's good enough for you to, bring this to your broker if you, if you got if you guys care about each other because i think it's just that that much of a game changer to to want to partner with this organization just because you're going to offload a whole lot you're going to offload your liability you're going to be able to scale and do the fun stuff like make relationships or do deals you just bolt it on and off, off you go and scale your operation so that's what it's been about and uh so i can i can knock out um what my numbers need to be in a few hours and then i really do want to take some shots at at different locations my my region as well but i just think now's the time to start getting your chops together and, and talking to people outside of your area just mm -hmm. just um, making your database and um making the connection, spending an hour or two, whatever it is, just to start making new relationships uh, on two people that, that might be able to use your service. Right. I think that's, so that's, I'm kind of trying to segment my day between pool time and uh, kids in the summer and those two things, just yeah. uh, EXP and uh, more acquisitions, I think. 
I definitely, I definitely, uh, I don't want any more management. I want, I want the homeowners to manage if, and if you got anything, anything less than one, then you got a management issue. If you got any house structure with more than one unit, then you have a management thing. So I guess my best case scenario, I'll, I think my next acquisition period, I'll be focusing on singles, single family residents or a building with like four or, or more than four where you could, you could build in the management. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever done anything where the homeowner wanted to stay in the property or they in distress and they wanted to stay? Have you ever done anything successfully with that? Not successfully. <laughs> no. There's been some crooked operations that get out there and save their bacon, put the money up for whatever it is to get to get off of the arrears. I don't I can't remember how they always get crooked. Maybe they just take ownership for the for the part in arrears. You don't know any horror stories. I can't remember them. I know there has been some. No. The people that focus on the people in distress and go try to just bail them out for what they need to get back in the loan. Yeah. And then that doesn't that doesn't solve the underlying issue. So they're right. usually gonna be back in the frying pan after that. But I don't know. I, I I know that equity skimming used to be a thing that was actual, you know, criminal offense. And then everybody got ha happy about, you know, wholesaling and finding rock bottom deals. And everybody kind of forgot about that. Um, what is that? What's I mean, that you, scenario? It, it basically, you know, misleading somebody about the value of their house and, and, and getting a ridiculous price on it, taking advantage of somebody. It doesn't matter if you're an agent or not. Just some people used to get in trouble for, for equity skimming. Um, mm -hmm. and you don't hear about it much anymore, you know, like you're helping the person out, but I mean, like, uh, Dallas Ketchum, he, he's plot tries to play by the book as best he can in this real estate world. He even sometimes signs contracts, uh, disclosing, I'm going to sell this house for a profit. You know, I might not even, I might sell it before I might wholesale it. I might not even take title. Like he discloses five or six different ways that he's going to make a profit off this thing. Are you still okay with it? Cause he don't want to get any kind of trouble. Um, you don't hear a whole lot about that now, but it's still, it's kind of sounds what you're talking about. Somebody comes in and says, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to catch you up. Uh, you know, give me a second position or give me first position knowing they're not going to succeed. Um, Here it is. What is equity skimming? Uh, homeowners defaulting their mortgage property may be facing foreclosure, and other parties usually an investor comes in and proposes to help by buying out the home before it gets foreclosed. Um, the investor may ask the homeowner to convey title as security. Investor promises that they will return the property to them. Okay, after everything is cleared. However, when that, what usually happens is that the investor get title, refi the property and take out all the equity and then skip out or leave the situation of often physically leaving the town or county. 
The original owner is then left with a new foreclosure situation on their hands. Well, how do they do that? Who refinances? I'm not sure if the author of that uh, paragraph really knew anything about real estate. Yeah. <laughs> another, another example. <laughs> they just they just do two loans, and then the, then the homeowner's got another loan. Uh, yeah, I didn't. This is a legal match. They've helped over 5 million people, David. But Another example is the new investor may keep the original homeowner as a tenant in the home. They may eventually evict the original owner if the original owner doesn't pay and then gain access to title that way. Here, the investor may charge much higher rent, forcing the owner to go into more debt, thus skimming off the equity from the home. You know, one, one way I've actually run across it in some of my businesses in the foreclosures uh, and there's a law in Mississippi where it's got to be maybe 40 or 50 percent of the actual value of the house so for instance I bought a house at foreclosure that was probably worth a hundred grand we paid like six thousand dollars for it nice. and you know the owner was the lady was in the house and she didn't know she had this old loan that she didn't even know existed anymore anyways got foreclosed she ignored the mail and so I carry it to an attorney because I'm trying to figure out, you know, the best way to handle it. And he says, man, you got you to gotta throw that thing like a hot potato. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? And he pulls out six thousand. He pulls out case law and he's like, you will get this foreclosure overturned because the language they use in Mississippi is like, you know, shockingly unconscionable price, you know, commercially unviable, that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's laws that are that are maybe not written. But a, a judge is going to look at it and just say, no, nah, we're not going for that. You know, it shouldn't it shouldn't be that cheap. Um, and so I went to her and explained to her the situation we were in and, and, and didn't know how to get out of it. Anyways, I told her I'd sell it to her at half of the value of the house. I'd either rent it to her at half the value of rent or I'd sell it to her at half the value of the house. That was the best I could do. And they actually bought it for 40 grand for us. Which oh, yeah. Is, yeah, it was great. I didn't want to kick an old lady out. Um, but what I really didn't want to do is is have the foreclosure thrown out because it was yeah. you know, commercially unviable. Right. Um, so we call it lesion beyond moiety in Louisiana yeah. yeah. Have you heard of that? I have. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You can't buy it for well. You get you get in trouble if you bought it for less than fifty percent of the value. Yeah. Oh. I don't think there's any other kind of asset like real estate. It's rather unique. The fact that it could be, I mean, you can get an option on it, I guess, and you can, I don't know, it's pretty unique to be able to buy and sell it just like a commodity or an asset and still be able to live in it and then trade it on. I mean, it's just the powerful economic driver for sure, but pretty unique. Yeah. No, I'm so glad I got into real estate, not something else. I mean, it, you know, it just keeps getting sweeter, you know, like not only am I making rent money, but the things are going up in value I'm paying down the debt. I get these tax benefits. I mean, there's, there's a lot of cool things about it, but kind of, when you first started saying that, how cool it is, I was thinking about the, the, the inefficiency of the marketplace, you know, like, real that's exactly is, right. Is, Which is coming. It might have a horizon date. Yeah. 
I mean, it's just all over the place. You know, what somebody will pay for it versus what somebody will sell it for. And then when you were talking about the CMAs, you know, that's a, a professional trying to make efficiency in an extremely inefficient marketplace. That's exactly right. And so it's, it's a moving target. It's just really tough to do. I mean, what really drives the prices of real estate is the cost of money. I mean, at the end of the day, that's it. You know, I can guarantee if interest rates jump to 15% tomorrow, if Jerome Powell speaks and the crowd goes quiet, you know, mm -hmm. oh, it's 15%. The market's done, man. You know, all these houses that were trading at $250,000 are going to be a hundred grand because that's people are buying payments. That's all they're buying. Yeah. So. Oh, Jerome. Well, you got any uh, druthers for next episodes? No, just chew on it, man. Yeah, um, I kind of does this cat in uh, real estate uh, confessions of a real estate entrepreneur. I think I'd like to digest. I think it would, this would force me to digest or redigest some some important works of uh, nonfiction. I hadn't read that. Is it a good book? Um. Is it like Kitchen Confidential for the real estate investors? No, it's uh, more <laughs> by the book. It's less flowery. I, you know, maybe maybe you have yes. <laughs> the Kitchen Confidential in you. It was pretty, it was a work of uh, literature, right? It wasn't oh, yeah. a how-to. Uh-uh. It wasn't a cookbook. Well, anyway, I think... Um, this uh, could could force me to reacquaint myself with some important works. It was funny. You were talking about uh, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And sometimes I have the same thought when I listen to him that sometimes I have when I listen to Pete Fortunato. And I think, <laughs> do, you, do you have any money? Because, <laughs> you <know>, like, <laughs> Pete, you're in the same tie I saw you in back in 2010. You know, you're talking about the same six deals over and over and over again. <laughs> like, do you have any money, man? <laughs> the people come in, I were like, genius. Amazing. <laughs> I can't believe this, this guy is for real. real. Yeah. Like, do you have any cash? Uh, I, I attended one of his things, and I was like, so I'm coming out the bathroom, and he was like sideways glancing. He's like, hey. <laughs> Yeah. These yeah. are the top of the food chain. This That's it. it. That's yeah. what I can aspire to. Yeah. Have you ever went to any happenings that have bored you to tears? I mean, day two of his options course, I was I was cross-eyed, you know. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, it was good stuff, but I've never used any of it. You know, I've been out buying houses, rehabbing them, getting them rent ready. Um I just hadn't, I hadn't put them in application, you know, just go get some options. You know, it's like, I'm not going to put down money unless I think I'm going to get a return. I'm not just going to go plant 30 options at a grand a pop, you know, but that dude gets creative, man. Like giving options on a, give him an RV or a gas card, you know, I mean, just get crazy, <laughs> man. It's Prime Day. It's Amazon Prime Day. I'll give you some Prime gift cards. Just do you want that today? Give me an option on the house for five years. Okay. Do you listen to Miller's tracks? I never have. Should I? Mm -hmm. 
more of the same. You're like, option. I mean, I, it was 08, and I was like, I need it. I'm done with the tool belt. I told myself, I'm done with it. It's like, what should I do? What should I do? And I knew somebody that knew Jackie Lang, and this is all this Wally pursuit. Everything came from that phone call to to Jackie Lang, and she spoke with me. Yeah, yeah, options, trailer parks, options. I'm like, where do I where do I send the money, Jackie? Oh, yeah. right here, right here, five hundred dollars. Yeah, I, I tore into it. I'm like, I'm gonna be rich. <laughs> <laughs> But he just, Jack just wound my brain around the pole. And I was like, what am I going to do with that? And he yeah. was like, you know, I really thought there was a limit you could do with options, but I just don't think that that's the case. And I think this is a, I'd have to think of it. He died in 2012 or 13. And this was within a few years of his dying. And like his, his, uh, manifesto after the culmination of all that he had learned and uh i was rather advanced but it's true as i think back on it you know i've always thought myself slow to the dance on pretty much every phase of my life is that i'm just a little slower than most uh, not quite as developed but I, I think i really do think about it um and I tell myself I need to listen to it again as far as just an asset class and, and the reason that it is so unique. Like smarter people than me can go into the stock market and buy an option to either short a paper, which doesn't make sense to me as a as a uh, non-collateralized asset. I mean, what happens if a value goes to zero? It just never really struck a chord with me. But you can play all those same kind of games with real estate. And, and I, I really do think that an on-time option and a straight option, I really think that there's room for it, for it in the marketplace for markets that are going up or down. But I really do think you have to get out there and talk to people and groom people that it could work for. I'm talking about sellers and buyers of options yeah you got to really know you got to educate yourself and know what you're looking for yeah i've thought about doing it over in this west fondren area but you know the problem with it is is you got to have options you normally got to give some consideration and the most commonly used consideration is cash and like, <laughs> like i'll be damned if i'm gonna throw my cash into an option right um, I'd love to get there. I'd love to have 30 grand and be like, you know what? I'm going to go throw $31,000 options on houses at a fair market value. Just get a number out of them and ink it up for 10 years. But if I had a and whole assume trip, that they're going to make the payments and taxes and do well, something resembling it. upkeep. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Well, <laughs> Jack used to look for shit roofs and peeling paint. Yeah. And would paint somebody's house for an option. Yeah. Which would be a little cheaper than cash, potentially. But he was looking for market imbalances. And he said that he he would um I'm gonna flub on the numbers, but he he said that he started making he didn't know what he was doing, but he started making twice as much money and, and he had a real estate license in Tampa and he would go make an offer for he was he was keen on the value and he would offer like 
10 or 20, some, some, something under market value. And he'd just wrap it up with a contract. He said, don't ever call an option an option. Just call it a contract. And he would, that was his strike price, what he called a strike price. And I struggled with that for years. What the hell is a strike price? But he, he had a strike price and then he'd go either improve it or clean it up or something. And then, and then have the position to be able to liquidate it, to be able to sell it. So, um, I guess this option had a strike price and it also had the approval to be able to exercise the option, which would be to list it on the MLS, I believe, or sell it on the open market and be able to collect that 10 or whatever percent that he, that he got. And he said, I was able to do that. And, um, he said he beat out listing agents, the people that wanted to list it. And he said he just beat them out with his option consideration. But when you say beat out a listing agent, I'm thinking the only person who's getting beat out by a listing agent is somebody who wants to sell their house. So how is he putting an option, not exercising the option? Like how is, how is a listing agent and what he was doing even the same game? Well, he gave him consideration. A listing agent just wanted, to, wanted him to sign a contract. A person wanted to sell, and he would talk turkey. He put himself in as a principal rather than just um, a listing agent who, in essence, has an option, right? A listing is an option, okay. in my opinion. But even though the seller still has to approve, a, it's somewhat of an option. I'll get paid when I sell this at this price. You kind of agree that this is kind of an option or call it a listing agreement. Even See, though I, you're still in I can't it. even I can't even so you were talking about distressed homeowners? No, just regular homeowners. Just regular home so I mean just give me a real world. I mean, how is that how is that applicable like in today's market? So the street from you lady wants to sell it nice house, half a million bucks. Yeah, just talk to her about giving you an option to buy it within We can't call it an option. No. We said, Let me write a contract, contract with you. Write it write a contract with you to sell it for 450. I'll put two, three, four, five thousand dollars down if if you let me buy it within the next 12 months. Okay. So if it's worth 500, then you'll run around like a striped ape trying to sell a thing. You're a motivated, you're an interested party, perhaps more interested than you would be if you were a listing agent. I guess I need to hear like what's this unique selling proposition like why would somebody do that and not just list it and just go sell the house put it on the open market i mean i know when people call me and they're like hey man i need to sell a house you know what i tell them to do throw it on the freaking mls you know if you want to put it into me eyeballs as possible put it on the mls i mean you called about pondale hey man how are we going to sell this put it on the mls so i mean like how what am i because if if i'm going to get max value i need to get it in front of max eyeballs I just don't see how to make money on I'm taking it off the major marketplace. I'm going to put an option on it and I'm going to make more money than the homeowner could have made. How am I going to oh, do He was that? talking Turkey. He was saying, I'll give you this. I'll give you four fifty. Just give me six months to close. You can make your plans. I got you. 
I think he was in a congruent market. Yeah. I, I definitely would love to listen to tapes because I do think that there's probably definitely some, I mean, there's obviously things to learn from it. Um, hell, I never thought an owner would finance a house. And that's been, a, you know, like, yeah. My sister calls about a house next door to her that she heard that the grapevine's going to come up for sale. And I'm like, well, go talk to him before they put on the market. She gets the guy's number and she's talking to him. She's like, what do I do? I was like, see what he wants for it. Make an offer. Ask him why he wants to sell it. And, and just ask him the probing questions. Like, wouldn't you like to avoid paying commissions? Wouldn't you like to avoid, you know, not making repairs or filling out a property condition statement? Wouldn't you like to just sell it, you know, without all those headaches? And she's like, well, what if I get in her contract? I was like, I don't know. We'll figure it out. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out the finance. And if you get a good enough deal, I can get you financed. Um, so she's, she's working that right now. Um, Isn't that but, interesting? She negotiates for a living and is kind of unsure yeah. about. Yeah. She's like, I got to wait for it to come on the market. I'm like, absolutely not. You want to get to it way before then. So. Uh-huh. All right, that's it for this episode of The Wide World of Real Estate. Hope you've enjoyed it, and I'll see you next time. Marcus Tuttle and David Suggs signing off.